So Luke chapter 16, uh, verses 19 through 31, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, the parable of the great reversal, whatever you'd like to call it. Before we read it, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that as we take a look at this passage, that you would impress it upon our hearts and upon our minds, that we would be changed by it. Uh, each of us sitting here, together with your people all over the world, uh, need the truths found in your word. And so we pray that you would do uh, just a great miracle that through ordinary means, you would uh, change us, that you would grow us more into the image of Jesus, your son. We pray this for his sake. Amen. All right, Luke 16, uh, at verse 19, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if somebody goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Thus far the reading of God's word. May he bless it to our hearts and lives this morning. Beloved congregation of hope and everyone with us here uh, this morning, uh, if you recall back in uh, verse 1 of Luke chapter uh, 16, uh, Jesus told the parable of, a rich man with a dishonest manager that we looked at uh, last week. And then verse 13 of chapter 16, he says, no servant can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. And then in Luke chapter 16, verse 14, we're told the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and ridiculed him. You could argue that Luke 16 is a chapter in which Jesus is teaching about the relative value of money or how devastating money uh, can be to a people. And we are told very explicitly that the Pharisees, they were just lovers of money. That's what they lived for. That's what they wanted. And they're in Jesus' hearing, and he is teaching them about it. And so in this section of Luke, where Jesus is going after those who love money, trying to convince them, as it were, to trust in him and to flee serving money in order to serve God, he teaches this parable of a rich man and a really, really poor man. Now, just beginning with the rich man, which is where Jesus begins in this parable, we're gonna look at 
what he's like. We're told he's clothed in purple and fine linen. You want a modern day update, the guy's just wearing Armani suits and the best of the best, right? Whatever that may be. Very fashionable, clothed in luxury, dressed like a king, you can argue, wearing fine linen and purples. And he feasted sumptuously every day. It's literally who enjoyed oneself magnificently every day or who made merry with splendor every day. We would say he lived it up every day. He lived it to the top. His life was incredible. Every single day, he had tons of comfort and pleasure. Some have translated this passage, feasted sumptuously as a contrast to Lazarus who wanted to eat anything. (laughs) But the point is that he just lived it up and feasting was part of his living it up. He ate in, he ate out, he ate nothing but the best food available, and he had the money to do that. He did this every single day. This is a man who probably didn't have to work in the parable, the story Jesus is telling. You could say he's the guy who saved up his $20 million at the age of 40, and he just gets to live it on out, early retirement, living the American dream for the rest of his life. It's a very relatable story, right? This person here is very relatable. There are people all over the world today, here in America included, who don't have to work a day in their life, whether through making tons of money in this life or getting a great inheritance, they can live it up sumptuously every day. Now, if you just stop after this really short description of this rich man, and you went and interviewed the Pharisees who were in Jesus' hearing, and you asked them, what do you say about this guy? All to a T, they were lovers of money. They were arguably the first health and wealth gospelers. If you'd asked them, what do you think of this rich man? Is he blessed by God? Does he have eternal life? They would have all to a T, like they said, oh yeah. Oh yeah, this guy has eternal life. This guy is blessed by God. This guy has a relationship with God. And if that weren't enough, based on their beliefs, we're told in Luke 16, 24, that the rich man called out Father Abraham. So he's a Jew in the lineage of Abraham. All the more they would have been like, yes, this is our guy. So the rich man in the parable assumed that he was on good terms with God in his life before he crossed over to death. The Pharisees would have assumed this guy was on good terms with God. He's rich, he's blessed by God. How could God not be on good terms with him? And then we're introduced to the second character named Lazarus, verse 20. At his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus. So it's interesting that at his gate was laid, was laid as in the passive. Lazarus didn't meander himself over there and take up a seat and start the begging process. He was bad off enough that somebody actually had to lay him at this rich man's gate, according to the story Jesus is telling us. So it's striking that Lazarus is not just poor, although that is beyond question. He's he's broke poor. He's really poor. He's beyond poor. He doesn't have anyone who is wealthy enough to care for him. And the man's condition is so destitute, so bad off that no one else was able to care for him. So they brought him to the only place they could think that he could receive help, a rich man's gate, and just laid him there with the assumption that Lazarus can't get up, he's lame, or something's really wrong with him, that he can't get up and walk there and leave. So the people who laid him there would have been saying, we just can't do it anymore. Lazarus is in a dreadful condition. We're told, verse 20, he was covered with sores. (laughs) 
These are the same sores that are going to be poured out in the judgment. Revelation 16, 2, the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshiped its image. Lazarus has those sores, much like Job did, just covered in him. He's living in a very painful existence. In verse 20, we're told how hungry he was. He desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Give us the scrap, give me the scraps, right? The leftovers, the crumbs, what people may clean their hands with, bread, whatever the case may be, just give me something to eat from the rich man's table. And there's a bit of a consolation, but it shows you how low Lazarus was. Verse 21, moreover, or the language instead of moreover is but or however, as if this were some sort of consolation. <laughs> he's really bad off, he's sick, he's late at the gate, he wants to eat, but hey, this is a bit of a blessing. The dogs came and licked his sores, which, oh, there's a bit of relief that some have argued is here, but it shows you how low he was. He's among the dogs. Now, these are not like pet dogs, right? Or a little cute, fluffy, and whatever your dog's name may be. These are scavengers. These are wild dogs, likely, who are providing him at least a bit of relief. But Lazarus is in a horrible condition. Now, I don't want to spend too much time here, but I want to highlight something which I, I think we can at least get from this parable. We know the poor man, Lazarus, ends up in heaven but I think it needs to be said that believers' lives in this world can look this bad, right? That the lives of believers can be filled with all manner of pain and difficulty and poverty and sickness and lameness and paralyzation and strokes and hunger and just difficulty that our Heavenly Father, out of His love for us and for His own glory and for our own good in some unspeakable way that we can seldom understand when we're going through it, is good for us and brings him glory. The lives of believers can be characterized by Lazarus' life. And it's only to the extent we've bought into this health and wealth gospel that we would look at someone like Lazarus and say, oh, there's no way he could be a believer. That we're just like the Pharisees in our thinking. We're told, verse 22, the poor man died he was carried by the angels to Abram's side. So the poor man died. His suffering comes to an end as it does for every single believer in Jesus. We will suffer in this life through many tribulations. We'll enter the kingdom of God. We will have crosses to bear. We'll have to deny ourselves and follow Jesus. It will involve pain. But as soon as we die, then our pain comes to an end when we get into heaven as it the pain ended for Lazarus. And for those of us who are in the midst of suffering physically, who are going through unbearable pain, there will actually be a point in history when it's over. Thank the Lord, right? That day is coming for every believer. Whether we're going through suffering now or will in the future, the suffering will end. Now, this may not seem like much, that suffering will one day end, and it may seem so far off as to be of no earthly use to us. But I think what this parable can at least teach us, one of the things we can notice is that suffering will end. Viktor Frankl was a Holocaust survivor who made it through Auschwitz. And one of the things that he is noted for saying is that those who suffered without something to hope in usually died first. 
You have no reason to get out of Auschwitz, no reason to persevere, no loved one you want to see, no reason to live afterwards, no career to pursue. You'll just die of hopelessness, and those are the people who died first. But the ones who continued hoping, right, and obviously they had a measure of physical wherewithal to make it through that, were usually the ones who made it through all the difficulty. Beloved, in this life as believers, it's such a great encouragement in the midst of difficulty and suffering to know that it will end. That gives us hope. There's a, there's a terminus on this. There's a, there's a due date on our suffering. There's a day when it's all over. And the day's coming soon. It'll be at our death. It'll be at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, whichever happens first. But our suffering does not last forever. It won't last forever. It will indeed come to an end. So don't lose hope. I want to highlight something about Lazarus, which would have really caught the Pharisees listening to Jesus' attention. He was carried by angels. Now, the Pharisees believe in angels, but they would have been shocked that the angels would want to touch. Did you catch that? They carried him. <laughs> now, the point is not the detail. Oh, angels carry us to Abram's side. No, we know from First Thessalonians, we go to be with the Lord, right? But catch what's going on here. Catch the point. They're touching this man, this poor man who probably smells horrendous, whose sores are being licked by the dogs, who's covered in sores. The angels carried him. What are they doing touching this guy? They carried him to Abram's side. Now, the Pharisees would have been shocked by this. And notice it's to Abram's side, to Abraham's side. Now, everyone, all the Jewish religious leaders would have agreed that Abraham was in heaven with the Lord. So it's not at all surprising that Abraham is in a good spot, but would have what would have knocked their socks off is that Lazarus would be brought to Abraham's side in heaven. Abraham was rich. Abraham was their father. Abraham was their untouchable ancestor who was in heaven. What's this wretched, poor, miserable, lame man doing next to Abraham's side? How does that work? Again, notice the contrast Jesus is setting up here. Well, flipping back to the rich man now, he's been introduced. We got a snippet of Lazarus. We're told Lazarus died right in the middle. And if you'll notice, the parable begins with the rich man. It ends with the rich man, right? He's sort of the main emphasis here. We're back to the rich man, verse 22. The rich man also died and was buried. He had a burial, actually. Lazarus didn't. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. Just want us to notice what Jesus highlights here. The rich man also died. Lazarus died. Everybody gets that. The rich man, he died too. It happened to him as well. What took place in Lazarus' life, his life ended, took place in the rich man's life too. All great runs for the really rich and comfortable people come to an end. They always do. If you're rich in this life, you can live it up. You can have your mansions, your sumptuous feasts, your great clothing, right? Happens all over the world today. Happens Right here in Pella, Iowa, happens all over God's creation. If you're rich, you can live it up. You can inundate yourself in luxury and comfort and pleasures to no end. You can go on living like that for decades. Some people, 40, 50, 60 years if they're wealthy from a young age. But then it ends. It just comes to an abrupt halt because everyone dies. <laughs> everyone uh, has appointed their death day. And the most that will ever be said about such a person is they had a great run while it lasted, but nothing in this world lasts forever. Augustus Caesar, he had a great run. Catherine the Great from Russia had a great run. Joseph Stalin had a great run. Genghis Khan had a great run. Henry Ford, John D. Rockefeller, Andrew Carnegie, they all had great runs. Tremendous wealth. 
tremendous lives until their lives ended and it was all over. I want to highlight something here that the rich man discovered, which he was probably unaware of would take place in his life, that he ended up in Hades, we're told, being in torment. This would have caught the Pharisees off guard. It certainly would have surprised the rich man. Abraham's his father. He's blessed by God, and he's waking up in Hades. And the Pharisees would have been surprised by this as well. There's something which the story highlights that we might miss, but the Jews would have gotten, that there is a complete reversal here. The man who should have been in hell, so the Pharisees thought, is in heaven, and the man who should be in heaven, so the Pharisees thought, was actually in hell. How does this work? I want us to just understand that there are many people in hell who are surprised to be there and whom others are surprised are there as well. That's one of the teachings of this parable. There will be people in hell. There are people in hell right now under God's wrath, though it's not been issued out in fullness at this point because the day of judgment hasn't come who are themselves surprised to be there. And if you interviewed all their peers who were alive during their day, the peers would have been surprised as well. Something else I wanted to highlight about this rich man is that hell is torment. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham. And then he said, look, give me some water on the end of my tongue. I'm, I'm in anguish in this flame. It's a lot of description about what this rich man is going through. In hell, the word torment is literally severe pain occasioned by punitive torture, severe pain caused by something oppressive. The pain was immense, unbearable, oppressive, severe. The word anguish, literally to undergo physical torment or pain. And then on top of that, we're told the language of flame, simply a fire, a burning inferno. Think of Nebuchadnezzar's burning furnace. Think of 2 Thessalonians 1.8, the Lord Jesus in flaming fire will inflict vengeance on those who do not know God. Isaiah 66.15, behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger and fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment. Matthew 25.41, hell is called the eternal fire. Matthew 3.12, hell is called unquenchable fire. And Revelation 14, 10, an unbeliever will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. The man's in complete anguish. I had a college teammate, Mark Bachman. He was a fellow uh, shot putter and discus thrower. Uh, who was burned. I can't remember what percentage of his skin was burned up. He had melted skin all over the place. Most painful thing he's ever gone through. And he said the doctors in the trauma unit, when he was there healing, said actually burn victims are the ones who go to probably arguably the most pain uh, of anyone who suffers in this life because every nerve ending in your body is screaming, sending a signal to your brain that something is drastically wrong. And that's not uh, necessarily proof that hell is miserable but it's just a bit of a picture of what this man's going through. He's in flames, he's in fire, he's in torment. If you were to take the most excruciating pain that a human being has suffered in this world, combine it with all manner of mental anguish and torment, and mix it with complete hopelessness at the realization it will never end, and combine that with the fact that there will never be even the slightest relief 
you've begun to describe what hell is like. This is what hell is. It's an eternal existence in the state of severe pain and discomfort and trial and suffering because in it, you're under the weight of God's perfect judgment against your sin and you know he's right to punish you this way. Notice the rich man doesn't ask to get himself out. He knows it's not an option. Pleads for his brothers, absolutely. Pleads for relief, to be sure. But he doesn't ask to get himself out. He sees it. There isn't a way out of this. I'm here, and God is righteous in his judgment. In his judgments, he doesn't say it's unfair. He just asks for a bit of relief. The third thing I want us to notice here is that biology cannot deliver anyone from hell. That's a picture we get from the rich man. Verse 24, he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I'm in anguish in this flame. Father Abraham, the man's a rich Jew. He has Abraham as his father. And that wasn't enough to save him. He's biologically related to Abraham. By ethnicity, he's Jewish. And yet that wasn't enough to save him. For so many of the Jews of Jesus' day, they believed that being born Jewish, being born in the line of Abraham meant salvation. And there are a lot of people who today, all over the world, run into the exact same heresy. We're all prone to it, beloved. Hey, as long as I'm an American, therefore everything's fine between me and God. Or hey, I've got a Dutch Reformed heritage, or I've got a Scottish Reformed heritage. Therefore, everything will be fine on the last day. Biology, beloved, can't do you or me a bit of good on Judgment Day. The only thing that can do us any good is knowing Jesus Christ. God will oftentimes use our biology, right? He'll use people in our lives as a means to bring us to salvation. But no parent, no grandparent, no ancestor can save us. Only Jesus can save. And this rich man found that out the hard way. Well, there's a fourth thing I want us to see, and that's hell is permanent, verse 26. Besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. The end of life means there is no more room for repentance. That's why death is so final. Death is not just the final end of this life. It's also the final cementing of our eternal destiny. All who believe in Jesus at death go to heaven. They will never, ever cross over into hell, ever. That's wonderful, right? <laughs> That's incredible. It won't even be possible for us to wiggle our way out of heaven. The possibility won't even exist. Praise God. But there's a real sobering part to that too, which is what this parable is emphasizing. That for everybody in hell who didn't believe in Jesus, there is no way out. There's no purgatory. There's no crossing over. There's no getting to the other side. And that will be discovered the very second that a person dies, whether I am in Christ or not. No one in hell will ever atone for their sins and after a certain amount of time be brought to heaven. The death of a human being ushers in a permanent state of existence which will last forever. forever. Either one believes and will be in heaven forever with no possibility of living anywhere other than heaven, or one does not believe and will be in hell forever, with no possibility of parole or pardon or relief or change of circumstances ever. 
And the fifth thing I want us to notice about the rich man that leaps off the page is that deliverance from hell comes by taking God at his word, verses 27 to 28. So the rich man asked Father Abraham, look, just give me a drop of water on my tongue. Send Lazarus, right? He's still, has there been a repentance for how he treated Lazarus when he was alive? Has there been a turning around? No, now Lazarus is his errand boy, right? <laughs> Go tell Lazarus what to do. Father Abraham, come on. You know me, I'm worth it. Go have Lazarus do this. He's at my bidding. I'm in charge of him. And Abram says, look, your request to bring you some relief, not granted. Your request to go tell your brothers, to go tell them so that they can repent and believe, Remember, this rich man has a doctrine of repentance. Go, if someone raises from the dead, is raised from the dead, they'll repent. That request to have Lazarus go do that, that's not granted either. And what is the reason that it's not granted? What's the reason given why it's unnecessary that someone be raised from the dead in order to bring someone to repentance? The reason is they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear him. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if somebody goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. Look, just... Send Lazarus from the dead. If they see him, which means clearly they knew him while he was alive, if they see him raised from the dead, they'll repent. If they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Give them a sign. As soon as they see a sign of resurrection, they'll repent. That's what the rich man thought. So what did Moses reveal? that Abram's referring to, that Jesus is referring to in this parable, what did Moses and the prophets reveal? What is he saying? Hey, if they don't believe Moses and the prophets, they're not going to turn around. Well, Moses revealed that God alone saves, right? How did the Israelites get out of, Exodus, out of Egypt? Through the Exodus, the blood of the Lamb, right? They came out. That's clearly taught. What did the prophets reveal? The need for repentance, right? Repent, turn around, trust in God. Like, Stop trying to save yourself. Stop rebelling against the Lord. Repent. Trust in Him. What did the Old Testament teach? Clearly, when you went to the centerpiece of the Old Testament, the tabernacle, what was clearly taught is you can't approach God without a sacrifice. You want to come into God's presence as a sinner, then something's got to die. You need a substitute or you have no hope of relationship with Him. And if your brothers, Mr. Richman, don't want to believe in that message. It isn't going to matter if someone is resurrected from the dead. And if we want further proof of that, look at John 11. Remember the resurrection of a different Lazarus who was raised from the dead? And when it happened, the Pharisees and the chief priests said, what are we to do? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. Did they believe? No, they're trying to throw this under the rug. Let's get rid of it. No. We're stuck. And the greatest resurrection, capital R, right? Jesus' resurrection. You remember what the Pharisees and the scribes did with his resurrection? If we're to take the rich man at his word, we should think that as soon as the Pharisees and the scribes saw Jesus resurrected, they fell on their knees and believed. But here's what they did. When the chief priests had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. Oh, if somebody rises from the dead, 
they'll believe. No, they won't. They'll make up a story. They'll try and cover it up. They will knowingly go on in their unbelief, so knowingly that they know they have to bribe the soldiers to tell a different message to the world. Let them believe Moses and the prophets. Let me just conclude with quite a few thoughts, I guess. Number one, Jesus, more than anyone else in all the Bible, is the one who teaches us about hell. If you think Jesus is a great teacher, then you have to believe hell exists and it is the most terrible place to be in all the universe. Jesus said so. There's a lot of people in the world who believe Jesus is a great teacher. But if you talk to them about hell, the conversation will end. And what they need to know and all of us need to know as well is that Jesus taught a lot about hell, a lot. More than arguably anyone else in all the Bible. And Jesus teaches us about hell for a reason. Well, two reasons. Number one, because it exists. He's telling us the truth. There will be a place where we will be judged for our sins and be forced to make payment forever <laughs> if we don't believe in Jesus. That place really exists. So he tells us because it exists, he also tells us in order to scare sinners into turning to Jesus. Right? It's a fearful place. People look at hell and say, I don't want to end up there. Good and right, right? I don't want my friends to end up there. Good and right, right? <laughs> like, I hope that's what we're all saying. Every believer, every reader of the Bible should say there's one place I never want to end up. That's under God's judgment in hell. It's that horrible in its description. You know, ACDC called hell the promised land where their friends were too. Liberal theologians explain it away or ignore it. Many of us Christians don't talk about it. Funerals seldom acknowledge it. But every soul who dies apart from Christ, if you ask them five seconds after death, would not be able to stop talking about the horror of it. The pain, the outer darkness, the weeping and gnashing of teeth, the flames and fire, the burning sulfur, the hopelessness, the despair, the eternal torment with no relief. We can ignore it. People can say, I'd rather not talk about it, but it doesn't change the fact that it exists. And it's the most excruciating place to be. It's the most horrible location that anybody can ever end up in. And it just doesn't end. And there's not even relief. Third thing I want to mention here as we kind of wrap things up is the difference between the rich man and Lazarus was the difference of trust and help. Verse 25, Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. There's a great reversal and it almost sounds like salvation through poverty and damnation through success and riches, right? It's kind of what it sounds like on the surface. <laughs> the problem, Mr. Rich Man, is that you had money and your money damned you. And the blessing for Lazarus is that he was poor and his poverty saved him. That's kind of what it sounds like on the surface. But actually, if you look at their names, that helps us understand what's going on here. Lazarus means my God is helper. God is my help. Lazarus means God is help. This is the only parable where someone is named. The name means something. That the reason that Lazarus is in heaven 
is because God helped him. God was his helper. God was the one that he looked to and trusted in for salvation. God was his only hope. And it's interesting that Lazarus is named, but the rich man is not named. Why aren't we given his name in this parable, right? It's obviously a made up story to lay aside a spiritual, divine, heavenly truth so that we can all get the point. Why didn't Jesus use a name for the rich man? Well, we know all about the rich man that we needed to know. He's rich. It's the only important thing. If you would interview the people in his day, right? If there were people in his day, this parable, if you'd interviewed them and said, tell us the most important thing about this man who feasts sumptuously and outside whose gate Lazarus is placed. Tell us all about him, Jesus. Tell us the most important thing. Give us his identity. What makes him tick? Jesus would have said, I've already told you. He's rich. That's the most important thing you need to know about him. That's all there is about the guy. No relationship with God. God's not his helper. He's not looking to the Lord to be saved. He's just got a lot of money. That's his identity. His money can help him in this life. But notice, what did his money do for him in the next life? Nothing. Didn't do him a bit of good. Lazarus had no money. He had no help in this life. But what did trusting in the Lord do for him in the next life? Everything. Beloved, Lazarus' name is good news. For everyone who trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ, for everyone who trusts in God, for everyone who's looking to God for help, for salvation, for deliverance, regardless of how this life is going, there is eternal life to come. But for everyone who's trusting in money or fame or success or career or health care or health or whatever the case may be, for everyone who's trusting in that, there isn't heaven to look forward to. There is judgment for sin. The rich man's money helped him. If you have money, you can purchase comfort, pleasure, security, better health, luxury, less pain. You'll probably live longer if you have more money. That's, I think there's been some studies. You have better access to care. You can relocate to a better place on the planet if you don't like where you are, right? If you're poor, you're stuck. <laughs> so we call it being stuck in the projects. You don't even have, get out of the projects. If you don't have enough money to buy a bus ticket, how do you get out? But if you're rich, you can go wherever you want. Money can buy you a lot of earthly benefits in this life. Please don't discount that. It's taking place all over the world. But it can't do anything as far as getting us to escape the judgment. Only Jesus can do that, beloved. Money cannot help you in death. Lazarus found comfort in being the one whom God helps. He found comfort in belonging to God, in being God's charity case, in looking to Christ alone for salvation. Let me ask you this. I'm asking myself this as well. In what or in whom are you trusting to deliver you from hell? From God's judgment. <laughs> it's not a fun question to think about, is it? And yet here's Jesus confronting us with this reality. Are you trusting in your money? Am I trusting in mine? Or are you trusting in Jesus? If there are any here who don't know Jesus, whose hearts are after money, who maybe haven't even thought about it, right? Hey, life is pretty good. We live in America. We've got good hospital. If not, Iowa City has great hospitals. Mayo is not too far away. Des Moines got great hospitals. Life feels pretty good, right? Got plenty of money to pay my 
bills and I got some savings, looking to retire by the time I'm 65, 67, maybe we'll be 80 by the time we're up there, who knows, but whatever the case, life is going really well. Maybe you've never thought about it. You're gonna die someday. The Bible makes clear there is appointed a judgment at your death. It's gonna happen. Think about that. Look at this rich man going on in life. His life was probably way better than yours ever will be. And look what takes place forever when it's all done. And it's a chasm he can't cross over. Think about that. Trust in Jesus. Believe in him. It will cost you 30, 40, 50 years of pain, however long you live, but you will have an eternal life in heaven with God. That will be more than worth it. Let's pray.